Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. Why are you a writer? No, I'm not a writer. I'm not a writer in the slightest. Um, and I, I just have to write a little bit about what, what we do in the, in the travel business and how we started our company Safari Drive and where we're at today 30 years later. So because we all have to, to sell ourselves and what we do and, and we have to tell people how our business works and why it's great um, or why we believe it's great. And so I'm interested in learning the skills of writers and and the, and the way of making narrative interesting. And that's that interests me as to how I can actually improve my writing skills. Otherwise, you know, it's it's just dull for people to read and, or hear about or, or listen to. Um, and so it's good to, to learn storytelling, that sort of thing. That's what interests me. Well, that's what it boils down to, you know. Um, I, I could podcast someone who's the absolute best at something in the world mm-hmm. but if they're just a, a geek or and, and i don't mean that in a bad way but if they mm-hmm. if they if they don't have the ability for strong storytelling sure. what's the point for sure and, and quite often the most talented people in their sports aren't necessarily the best storytellers um because their skills uh, are, are focused on their sport and quite often very good pilots are, are actually quite quiet introverted thoughtful people who don't necessarily want to go and shout about what they do you know they they let their flying tell us tell tell the story um and you know great english pilots like mark watts you know you never hear him shouting about his flights at all mark watts just does great flights and um and is a you know a, a very thoughtful um naturally brilliant pilot um tell us about that business you used to move vehicles from one place to another in Africa. Uh, you were telling me the other day how you are gobsmacked that 30 4x4s have been rolled in 25 years. We set up Safari Drive in 1992 for people to experience Africa the way that we actually like to, to experience it ourselves, i.e. driving your own vehicle across the African bush, camping out in the wilds, Having that wonderful sundowner moment where you can sit back around the campfire uh, with the gin and tonic, just appreciate the tranquility of the bush. And tourism wasn't really doing that uh, 30 years ago. It was it was more geared to tour groups, groups of people, um, and it didn't give that that sort of wonderful feeling of being out there in the African bush, being self-sufficient. And there were there was an opportunity to develop a company that gave those experiences to people. Um, it was that feeling of wanting to be out there and away from it all. And we all love that experience of, of getting out into a vehicle, driving out beyond, you know, just driving day after day and, and experiencing just a different type of holiday. Uh, and it was a way to explore the, the deserts and deltas and national parks of Africa the way we like to see them. And it's the way that the guides themselves would like to see Africa. If you talk to any any guide, when you ask him what he does on his holiday, he'll say, well, I just take my, I may be very patient and, and 
and just sit and watch the birds or just the wildlife and get away from it all. And that's what we try to encapsulate with Safari Drive, that, that experience. And so to do that, we had to actually buy 4x4s, kit them out, set them up in Africa, set up the staff to, to meet people off the planes and brief them, um, sort out the itineraries of people, make national parks bookings, um, maintain the vehicles, set people out on these journeys across Africa. And so it actually enabled a, a whole new um, era of, of travel in Africa. Otherwise, the only alternative was for people to leave their job, buy a 4x4, drive it to Africa. Something that people did, but they could just dream about it and say, well, when I, when I leave my, my job or when I've got the money, I'll do that at some, some point in the future. And what we did was enable people to, on their annual holidays to say, right, I'm going to spend three weeks and do a safari drive journey and have the essence of what Africa can offer. Um, and it's gone on to, to, to spawn a whole sector of the self-drive safari companies in Africa. Um, so it was great to, to sort of pioneer that, that change in the safari business. It's not for everybody. So for people who were, go, you know, I, that's not for me or uh, I want a guide or I want to be and looked after, that's great. And, and so it's, it's only for people that quite often like pilots who we like to be more independent. We, might, we like to make our own decisions about where we, where we go and what we do and, and um, how we spend our time. I agree with you more. I mean, uh, when you're speaking now, I think of Namibia, I think of traveling around in Africa with a vehicle. It's completely my thing. But for example, my partner, Tracy, who I'm with for 10 years, she she wants a shower and she wants a hotel room and it must be en suite and it should be of a level of comfort. So I agree with you. It's not for everybody. I mean, I, I totally agree that it's people want everyone is, is unique in what the ideal dream they have is. And what Safari Drive tried to do was to look at that dream and translate it into reality. So if you want to stay in lodges, you can, you can go lodge to lodge. You don't have to be camping. You don't have to be roughing it. You can go top end, top end every night. The most rewarding holidays for us were when you mixed and matched and you, you, you drove across the, world, the wilderness for two or three days, and then you arrived at a lodge where you could actually get the laundry done, have a lovely meal and, and speak to the guides and the, and the, and the guys in the lodge and then move on again uh, and go back into the bush. And suddenly you've got that balance, the dust and the realities of Africa combined with the luxuries of Africa, the guides, and you, you got to experience all sides of it. And suddenly it all clicked into place. Interestingly, the most memorable times where people were, when people actually were out on their own, making their own decisions, experiencing the, the, the realities of Africa, the highs and the lows. And it's, it is about the lows because you know, it's not all about being up there and being, being, being good the whole time. It's about the tiredness and the dirt and the dust and the mosquito bites and the, and the dehydration. And then it's about the highs to compensate that. And suddenly people, it worked for people because of that. They, they had to put in more about it. They weren't just taking from Africa. They were putting stuff back in. They were going to the markets. They were mixing with, 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 with all aspects of society in Africa. And suddenly they got a more balanced view of the country. They were going to a supermarket. You know, they were going and bartering in, 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 the, in, the, in the marketplace, in the vegetable markets, whatever. And they would come back and suddenly go, that's what Africa is about. It's not about this tourist vision that's created for, for us. A, a lot of people think that, you know, oh, I'm going to ride a motorcycle from Cape Town to Cairo and beyond. And it's just going to be dreamy and great and be able to stop in a nice lodge every night. Mm -hmm. Hey, wakey, wakey, uh, hands off the snakey. It's going to be something different to that. 
you've you created the self-drive kind of uh, company. Uh, give me some timelines and how many companies existed when you did that. When we had that an inspirational moment to say, we're going to start a company giving people Land Rovers to start so they can drive across Africa themselves, um, market it as a, as a, a commercial experience. There was, nobody was doing that. We actually went, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to call it Safari Drive. That didn't exist. Um, and we were the first commercial company to do that. Obviously, there were there were vehicles you could hire, but there was no no fully equipped vehicles. You could hire a Land Rover and say, or a Toyota somewhere, or, or Avis was obviously set, you know hiring normal normal cars, but none of them were selling or, or hiring to the four by four market. There was this big gap to experience the realities of Africa in their own vehicle. That was 1992, and yeah. you sold it recently. What was your business model in a nutshell? Were you owning the vehicles yourselves? Were you yeah, self-insuring we, them? Um, we we were the only company, and we remain the only company that actually set out to be the operator on the ground, to have its own staff on the ground, to own the vehicles, to maintain them and service them, and to also be an agent in Europe, selling those holidays directly to the client. So we could talk to the client here, in, in the UK or, or, or elsewhere, and then have our own team meet them on the ground, give them our vehicle uh, that we'd set up for them, take it back from them, put them back on the plane, end-to-end business. Uh, and that was why it was actually uh, ambitious in what it did. We started off with one vehicle. You know, by the end, or, or still, you know, you, we're running up to 20 expeditions on any one day in Africa. By and large, people had um, very few problems. Because everyone, everyone thinks, gosh, it's dangerous. You're going to have a lot of problems. And, it's, you know, how do you get any insurance for it? All people see is the problems of Africa. That's what the media have portrayed over many, many years. There's this negative image from the hotspots of Africa where they don't, they don't show the day-to-day lives of Africans and normal people going about their lives. And, and, and they also don't realize what a massive, enormous continent Africa is. You know, you can fit... America, the United States of America, you can fit China, you can fit Russia, you can fit most of the, the rest of the world, almost. You know, all of Europe can fit within the boundaries of Africa. Sure, you have problems in, in all countries, in all cities, but actually um, no more in Africa than elsewhere. It, it, wasn't a, it wasn't as outrageous a concept as, as people might think. And I always said to people, you know, we're always going to get you back because I want my vehicle back. You know, I've got a lot of money tied up in that vehicle that you're driving around. I will always come and look after you and, and, and uh, always come and find you. And we gave people satellite telephones and satellite navigation systems. And they were always expected along their journey anyway. Uh, so if they didn't turn up at a lodge, if they got lost, the lodge would go out and look for them. But in all that time, we never, we never had anyone that was seriously lost. We never had anyone that was, um, that, that was you know, seriously injured. Um, we had a couple of um, incidents with people you know, getting getting injuries from um, overturning vehicles, um, but they all recovered. Um, and that was just, you know, maybe one vehicle a year would get written off. So in the in the greater scheme of things, having having 25 or 30 vehicles um, written off sounds bad, but actually it's, it's one a year on average when you have 20 vehicles a day going out. What was your initial attraction to Africa? It's the adventure. When you when you leave school and you think, all I knew is I didn't want to go into that um, nine to five grind to pay the bills. I just didn't want to spend my life working to pay the electricity bill. And so it was a very 
I, I just I just actually planned to make travel my 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 living to work out ways of how I could actually see the world and get paid to do it. I worked in various. I started off working for an aid organisation in Sierra Leone in 1980, working with a cooperative on a beautiful little island called Sherbra Island off the coast of Sierra Leone, living in this island lifestyle, helping them um, with with their marketing to Europe. And then I, then I hitchhiked, I hitchhiked across Africa in, in 1981, and then worked. And so I drove overland trucks across Africa, uh, from Johannesburg through back to London, all the way through backwards and forwards with groups of uh, Kiwis and Australians, Brits. Those were the days where there were no communications. You'd enter into Zaire and you'd come out a month later, different people. You'd been changed by the experience of three or four weeks in the rainforest, in the jungle there, and then across the Sahara. It was a golden age of overland travel. People were still using the overland truck as a, as a way of, of adventure. And so I did that for seven years, then, and then got my own Land Rover and started taking small groups of, of travellers and filmmakers and expeditioners um, across Asia. I was, I was also travelling the, the London Kathmandu route, and I loved that, that traditional hippie trail. We were doing that in the, in the 80s too. And that, that's the sort of the roots of, of overland travel. And it, that's in Chobia National Park and having that inspirational moment to say, yes, this is what actually we can give to people, which is the, the self-drive safari experience. And that's where we are today, Ray. And unfortunately, flying got in the way 30 years ago this year. I was looking at my first entry in my paragliding logbook, and it's dated 14th, 14th of July, 1990, um, flying an ITV meteor. Um, so it's uh, 14th of July, it's 30 years ago, and... Um, it's been an amazing journey, 30 years of flying, and I've loved every bit of it. But I also think, what an idiot. How much time have I wasted staring at the sky, waiting for the weather to get better? I mean, come on. I could have done so much more. <laughs> you have flown 300 and 400 kilometers recently in uh, Brazil. Uh, you were describing to me how you fly from early morning until sunset. I think a lot of people, I don't know if you've ever read Rian Mansa's Around Africa on My Bicycle, but it's also a must read. I see you grabbing for a pen there and looking for a book. Um, and if you're a fan of Africa and if you're a fan of travel or either or both, um, you definitely want to be reading Rian Mansa's account here. He basically had a job with an insurance company in Johannesburg and he chucked it to say, fuck, there's got to be more to life. I'm missing out on a whole lot of great adventures here. And he bought a literally 200 euro bicycle and um, he, he had hardly any money. Just to add to what you're saying about traveling by bicycle, it's the simplest where actually the biggest adventures happen. And everybody believes that they've got to wait until they've got enough funds or they've got enough time or whatever. And there's a, there's a British guy called Alistair Humphreys who cycled around the world taking four years to do it. And he had zero budget. He just went and did it. And I think people need to understand that it's, it's whatever money they have at, the, at that time just set off and do it and the, it's the doorstep mile that that step of getting making that first step out of your front door that's the hardest hardest step to ever take but once you've made that step you're on your journey those journeys are what life is all about we all get um, this inertia that keeps us it's that fear that stops us crossing that doorstep mile you're very lucky Steph that you you've had that transition very very readily to to, to venture and travel 
And so many people don't, they struggle to, to, to make that. And it is, it is fear that keeps us all from, from going out there. Whatever, the simplest, the simplest methods of travel are quite often the most rewarding. The moment we start getting very expensive vehicles, it weighs us down and it does stop us a bit from, from getting out there. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we're living in an age where it's more and more materialism, more stuff, more stuff. I found myself becoming a massive hoarder with so many things. And then I watch a film on minimalism, literally just having three uh, tops, three. Uh, we, we don't need more than one jacket. A jacket does what a jacket does. Uh, who cares if it's blue and red and one is purple? And if, uh, you covered your, your body. Who? Uh, I mean, I don't cover my body a lot, but uh, it doesn't really matter what we have and you spoke earlier of me for example getting a spirit of travel and deciding that i'm never going to work for more than six months of the year etc etc these are perceptions and these are decisions that you actually make and uh, one of the most difficult things i perceive uh, amongst us human beings is to change and as we get older we get more and more set in our ways and so we we, we find it harder to break out of the mold, out of the comfort zone. How many corporate people in, in New York City are stuck in that shit job, are a complete slave, are paying between 3000 and 6000 US dollars per month just for rent? I was telling Tanashe here from Zimbabwe, who was my little assistant here, and he was. Uh, I was telling him, hey, I'm on the phone with somebody in New York who's paying 70,000 rand a month of rent. 70,000 rand. Tanashe could live a whole year and a half on 70,000 rand. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, that is the problem. But that's the pressure we're all under. And I think actually this current uh, lockdown time, it's actually teaches us all that we don't need so much. It's the simpler things in life. The pressure suddenly lifts off um, when, when you don't have all that to worry about. You've said to me a very valuable thing. Um, you've taken the moment to take a stone and scratch in another and maybe make the beginning of uh, a little putting ideas down, um, you know. Mm -hmm. Tell us about uh, Brazil. And I was um, very lucky to, to go towing out in Brazil in October. Towing actually is a passion of mine anyway. I've, I tow a lot in the UK. It's, it's a chance to actually get into great air when you haven't got a, a, a good hill around. I've been towing for... 15, 20 years in the UK. And I thought I could actually um, use those skills and, and go to Brazil and, and actually enjoy the, 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 the flatland flying in the Sertal of, of northeastern Brazil. There's something very special about clipping into a tow line at seven o'clock in the morning, being winched into an early morning sky where the Urubus, the vultures, local vultures, are actually taking off for the first time in the morning light. And when they take off, we take off there at seven. Going up to 3,000 feet and releasing into that morning air is very, very special. You're having to, you're having to scratch around for, for the first hour and a half just to stay in the air. Um, and the day builds there and builds and builds. And so, you know, you've got this amazing flatland vista of, of the Sertau that, that stretches on forever. As the day grows and strengthens, so you're climbing up to about 3,000 meters. It gets pretty strong. A couple of days out there, I actually chose to land rather than, than to stick with it. You know, it can get, can get rough. Every day is unique and has its own vibe to it. And if you're lucky, you manage to get in some longer flights. I had a couple of, of bigger, you know, 300 and 400k flight. Um, and that very, very special feeling of flying into 
into the sun going down in the evening. So flying for 10, 10 and a half hours, uh, coming to land as, as it's actually getting dark. And it's just a surreal experience because you know, we, in Europe, we don't get that chance to fly from seven in the morning till, till six at night. And just staying in the air for 10 hours, you end up with a massive, massive long flight. It's not in a way super skillful, but it's about endurance and it's about just managing managing your day, energy levels and sticking with it. And it's just one of the great flying experiences, I think, to, to do that. Certainly the, my longest flight was only 405, 410 Ks or something. But for me, it was the, one of the highlights of my flying career, just to, to have that 10 hours in the air. The stunning local people who, who look after you when you've landed, great local Brazilian people, great drivers and, and backup. You're spending the rest of the night going back to, going back to, to, to your, your base where you've taken off from. And then you appreciate actually how far you've come during that day. It's just a surreal and lovely, lovely flying experience and something that's recommended I think for anyone that, that actually loves cross-country adventure. If I tell you my record distance flight is a pathetic 156 kilometers, give me any competition and uh, I'm really happy to take on any pilot in the world today and say, right, are you ready to race? Uh, Steph Juncker here, unknown from South Africa. Let's have a little bit of a go. Uh, and then I say, embarrassed that my, and now I've said it publicly for the first time in a long time, 156 Ks. So I ask myself, you know, what the fuck would it be like to fly 400 Ks? And now you're describing it to me like a fairy tale. And although I'm extremely impatient, I just want my life to live in a day. I just want to get on a furious mountain bike ride. You know, 15, 20 minutes of strong lung busting is enough for me. Ride my motorcycle at top speed, wherever. You've described something quite interesting and quite intriguing. The allure was never there before you've said it to me. Okay, so I've been speaking to Alexander Roubaix a lot, who's been doing 400 plus kilometers one day after the next. I mean, he did like three, 400K flights in within two or three days. Uh, just unbelievable, like really crazy. Were you winching with Martin Portman, who's also yeah, looking to do we, we were with Simon Pence and Martin Portman. Um, they run a very, very slick operation. Great backup vehicles, good winches great team of, of backup drivers um the backup drivers are actually acro pilots and so the the journey yeah. the journey home is actually the highlight in a way of the adrenaline levels because they they have no fear these these acro drive, these acro pilots um and uh, but they're great great guys martin martin actually um lives out in in brazil a lot of the time between, he or spends his time between brazil and switzerland i thought i could i thought i could actually you know, tow you know, re reasonably well after 15 years of towing, of towing, and I thought I'll be fine on that. Which Alexander Robbie um, was coming to launch. We were in the same car. He said, "So tell me, tell me about this, uh, this winching. Tell me about this winching lark. What's that like?" I, I said, "Haven't you been winching before?" He said, "No, no, no. This is my first time. It's first, first time I, I will get winching." And I thought, "Yeah, interesting." Um, and he, he actually was fine. He's such a skillful pilot. He clipped into that that winch line, was launched to 3,000 foot, and was off on another 400k flight or whatever. It, it is a little bit more daunting than a normal, you know, UK winching experience. I, I love winching. I'm a big fan of winching, and I've done lots of winching in the past. You know, from the R in competitions to um, to to winching in Russia. I went to a fabulous competition for anyone out there who's keen on visiting St. Petersburg as a brilliant city and checking out the White Knights Cup. 
white nights is that special time of the year when we have the longest days in the year and um, St. Petersburg is the city with over a million inhabitants, which is the most north. Um, then Reykjavik is uh, with 300,000 people and it's even more north. So um, those are the cities that are like really, really far north. So they have the function at the end of the competition at the White Knights Cup in St. Petersburg was on a ferry through the uh, through the rivers of St. Petersburg, looking at the old beautiful buildings. And that started at 11 at night. And the party, and I thought, no, never, I can't do it. And I had a little siesta between 9 and 10 p.m. to be fresh for the party. Let me tell you, at 3 a.m., I was like, it's not over. The party can't be finished, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> But the winching uh, that I saw in Russia was the best winching operation I've ever seen in my life. Um, they used two small generator motors, like little Honda motors, like basically just pulling in the line. And uh, the, the, the one motor would um, tow you up. Okay, which is a, a static winch, so it's right across the field, a kilometer away, and it would it would pull you up, and you would tow a line behind you, which was attached to the starting point motor. Literally, as you released up high, the second motor, which is at the starting point, would be started up, and then would just automatically tow the line. You could get guys in the air in every three, four minutes. Uh, somebody launching. Um, where where Martin Portman and Simon Pence were so good is they had four winch vehicles. And so the first winch vehicle would be taking somebody up. The next vehicle would be getting into place with another winch on it. Otherwise, it's a, you know, you're, in, you're, you're spending a lot of time going up that line to 3,000 feet. I mean, you've got to work around that. Uh, I'm looking at a tandem operation somewhere else in South Africa today behind a boat um, uh, with its challenges and its things. And uh, I tell you, uh, winching is a super, super way to get a paraglide in the sky. And as much as a paramotor has its place, I think that the dream of free flight is really incomparable to uh, motor flight. You know, we haven't addressed a lot of paramotoring in these uh, podcast series. So, um, and paramotoring is, of course, another fantastic way, um, you know, take a 16 square meter paraglider and put a motor on it. And shit, go on, Charles, you wanted to say something. Have, have, you, have you done the Vol Bivs yet? Taken off across the, the Karoo with your, with your paraglider and your stove and your backpack? It's just not your thing, is it, really? Um, I'm not great at Hamilton. I have to say, although I do uh, like a little bit of adventure and I don't mind really roughing it, I really don't see the point. Unless, of course, you're in the Alps, for example, where you can have some kind of hut where you can at least get a warm meal and that kind of thing. And I don't think that's imperative. I can eat raw food for weeks. But the Volbe needs to be in the correct place. So Volbev in South Africa is very, very remote. And when Greg Hamilton, for example, who's got his video floating around, yeah. Um, did it, you know, to expect degree temperatures and think, oh, I'm cool. I've got three liters of water. I'm going to be fine. And to realize that even the Dwaring River is dry, you're in for a big surprise if you go down to the woods today. Sure. Did you did you fly in Albania? Yes, I did. And a great country, really nice culture, and not a lot of flying places, but they do have very nice flying places. Dumitor, Dumitor in Montenegro is the place to go to if you want a new untouched there's a tandem operation by peta there's a really nice setup but you want to look up montenegro and and paraglide i've driven i've driven past that site on the way down to albania and it looked it looked awesome i found albania was quite affected by the, the sea breezes a lot and those lovely long ridges which we flew down i was flying with barney white wood woodhead the ranges were affected very much by that sea breeze that came in 100 k's further to the to the east, you've got Khrushchev and the amazing flying that happens there. So 
it's not far away from Christopher. Yeah, a little earlier I was podcasting Russell Ogden, who gave absolute wealth of information. We were laughing about Robbie Whittle. And he was telling me the top three destinations in uh, Russell Ogden's um, book are mountain, uh, flying, St. Andre, flatland flying, Chelan, and all around easy, beautiful flying, Khrushchev. Those are his top three places to fly. For me, flatland flying is Britain. UK flatland flying is some of the most pleasant, wonderful experiences you'll come across. It's funny you say that. That's exactly what uh, Russell Ogden was saying. He was saying England, understated. Yeah. And and especially if you're flying with mates. And, and I had the pleasure of flying with, with Craig Atwell from Milk Hill, which I can almost see from my window here, to, to take off at, at 11 in the morning, climb out and fly across the green spring fields of, of the UK, do 100, 100 kilometers through some of the most beautiful countryside uh, in close company with, with him, uh, land at Milton Keynes. It's exactly what Felix Rodriguez was telling me on his podcast. Eh? As long as my buddies are there, I am happy and it's all good. Eh? When I was trying to launch my, my glider in, in uh, Asu in Phil, and I was failing, failing, failing badly because I was, I was just not, not ground handling uh, the, the wing as well as I might do. Who should step up and help me but Felix Rodriguez? He's the guy that went, no, 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 you're flying shit. This is the way you should do it. And he came in and just helped sort, sort up my wing and bang, away we went. And it was, it was one of those wonderful experiences where one of the best, one of the best ground handlers in the world just, just, you know, just sorts it out and off you go. <laughs> and always so down to earth, so real those guys. They don't, you know, they don't have any, they don't have any egos. They don't have any uh, complications. Oh, it's so, so nice and down to earth. And that's what I, I think has kept them so real. Yeah, exactly. Lovely to talk to you, Steph. I, I would like to hear your funny story of your logbook that you were saying. I mean, you've kept a pedantic logbook since the 80s when you started no, flying. No. I, uh, I, interestingly, interestingly the, the logbook only goes on for a very short space of time. It starts in July 1990. But the one flight that does stand out is a flight from 1991. And, and I'll just quickly read it to you. It says here, 28th of April, 1991, foot launching from Mamtor. Conditions were high pressure thermic on my Falhawk 10.5. It says it span canopy into the ground after going to sink from lift. Bit the earth, no damage, four further flights afterwards. What actually happened was I'd taken off in my very inexperienced way and was pushing, 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 trying to get into this elusive thermal started bell ringing, pulling one brake and then the other brake and then to overcompensating. And I was bell ringing this thing furiously and it was rocking backwards and forwards. And I'd heard that the way out of this was to stall the wing. And I, and I instinctively, or not instinctively, but just quickly pulled both brakes down to stall it. And I was only about 350 feet above the, the hill anyway. And the wing shot back into a stall. And I thought, that's it. And I let up way too early, and the wing, this Falhawk, went into a flat spin, helicoptering above me, wrapping the lines up, and the lines went to, it, it, literally, three or four wraps of, of, the, of the lines, 
and I was left with this knot of lines above me. And I thought, time to use my new reserve. And I instinctively reached, reached for the reserve, which was in front mounted. And as I looked at it, the ground was rushing up to me. And I grabbed all those knotted lines and pulled on them. And I then landed on the ground on my feet in front of the, the, the watchers on the hill. And they were all shocked. And I, and I shook out the canopy on the ground and picked it up and walked, walked off with it and laid it back out on the hill as if nothing had happened, shaking. And I then went on to have four further flights. And I thought, you never, I look back at it now and thought, you never realised what you actually got away with at the time. And we get away with these things time after time. We were so lucky. But, but it's interesting, it's the fear in a way that, that has never gone away. You know, it, it, always having that fear has slightly kept me alive over the years. It, it's, you know, it, you've always got to be careful. And I've always, I always have that concern that, you know, at any time, those sort of things can happen now. There you go. It's a long time ago. Any last message you want to give to the world? The world, yeah. Stay safe. Life will move on. We'll get through this all. And we'll be back in the skies very, very shortly, I hope. Take care, everybody.